Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. I've got a bit of a pet theory that I haven't totally tested out yet, but I think there is a sense in which the Greens are playing the rental card as if renting is a political identity, whereas I think the risk for the Greens is that most renters actually want to be buyers. Hello, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. I'm here in the pod cave and joined in Sydney by the Executive Director of Essential, Peter Lewis, which means it's another polling special of Australian politics. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Paul. The Essential poll was out in the field as the Matildas were playing for a place in the FIFA Women's World Cup final. Sadly, it wasn't to be, nor was the third place playoff. But the ALP were playing on a bigger stage this week as well. The ALP National Conference on Thursday through Saturday. And we also asked about some of the measures that were being debated at conference. But let's start with the Matildas. What did you find in the poll when you asked people about uh, equality in sport and whether they were encouraged to watch more women's sport after the World Cup? Yeah, it was an exciting few weeks, wasn't it, Paul? And um, one of our questions we actually ditched halfway through because we did have the public holiday question in there, but it was a bit irrelevant after the Wednesday, although, spoiler, people would have liked it if it had got that far. So what do we ask? We asked a series of questions about... Um, sport and gender. Local sporting clubs should provide equal development opportunities for both male and female players. Of course they should. 77 to or absolutely 3% strongly disagreeing with that. Who disagree with that? Professional sports women are as talented as professional sports men. That combined of strongly agree and somewhat agree is in the 70s, 74. Although I might add on that one, there is a bit of a gender difference. 66 blokes, 80% women. Thank you, men of Australia, as always. Professional sports women and professional sports men should be paid equally. 67% support for that proposition, 13% um, oppose or disagree, the rest in the middle. And the key one, I think, for a lot of us, my interest in women's sport has increased as a result of Australia's hosting the Women's World Cup. 50% of people, respondents agree with that, 21% disagree, 29 in the middle. So, you know, it, it has been quite a ride. Obviously, in all those, women were more likely to agree with those propositions. But apart from that one that I pointed out, uh, also the pay one, it was 57.76. So there was quite a bit of a difference there. So it polarised a little bit, but the majority on all those agreeing with those propositions. I thought it was interesting, the more general questions about fairness, equality of opportunity, they rated a lot stronger than the final one about interest as a result of the Women's World Cup. Perhaps some people just aren't soccer fans and if you weren't watching because you're not a soccer fan, you're you're unmoved even by uh, the great achievements in the home tournament. Yeah, but also if Again, it's question design, isn't it? It's interesting. So if you're already ultra into it, you know, ate and breathed um, women's sport, then it's made no difference as well. So, you know, it was probably one where 
it begs a few more questions. I'm just looking at voting intentions. So an interesting point on most of these major party voters, Labor or Coalition are more likely to agree than minor party voters, Greens and the One Nation slash Teals. And particularly in that interest increasing, the Greens are way down at 46. So what's going on, Greens? You don't like soccer. Don't like competition. I think what's going on? I think it. I think it's just jocks v nerds. I think uh, some of the like the greens are campaign. Are you saying that there are more greens that are nerds than jocks? There's like what about Pocock? Well, he's not green. He's well, the, independent, the, but greenish. The greens use question time to ask about you know the Brisbane Olympics are going to bulldoze a school next door and whatever. So if it's jocks v nerds, they've picked their side. I'm sorry. This is a big call by the Guardian, but I reckon you're going to hoist on that. I'm not playing into that one, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about we jump from the sports question to the, the voting real arena. to the voting intention? Yeah. I saw a few interesting moves in in primary votes here. Do you do you want to talk through it, or do you want me to? No, oh, why don't you open it up if you found some interest there? Well, it's just in the last fortnight, a slight uptick in the coalition's primary vote from thirty to thirty three percent. Labor is still thereabouts at thirty three percent. Similarly, the Greens, a slight uptick from 12 to 14%, and the poll finds that Independent or Other is coming off the boil slightly, and One Nation in particular Mm. is coming off the boil. So it it seems like a bit of the One Nation vote shifting back to the Coalition and a bit of the Independent Other vote shifting back to the Greens, which is interesting because the Greens and the Coalition in their way have both been taking it up to Labor, the Coalition over the voice, the Greens over uh, Mm. housing policy, which we'll get onto in a minute, but not a lot of change in the two-party preferred. Two-party preferred is still Labor ahead, 51% to the Coalition's 43%, with 6% undecided. Yeah, it's really interesting, Paul. So Labor, it's interesting because it's not a zero-sum game. So Labor is flatlining in its primary vote at 33, the Coalition up three, the Greens up two. So what do we make of that? There is noise. This is not a normal, you know, lazy beginning of a second term. There is a lot of noise around. The voice is a catalyst for that, obviously, but as you say, so is so is the housing debate, which the Greens are really drilling down into. And you can see for both of those the the fact that there is some purchase at this stage of a political cycle, which isn't normally the case. The two-party plus and For listeners at home, again, if you want to sort of play around with this, go to essentialreport.com.au. 51, 43, 6% undecided in terms of the two PP plus if we were attributing preferences of minor parties. So that's still, you know, a, a solid position for an incumbent government and nothing here that's showing a real narrowing at last time we looked, it was 52, 42. So it's been a point either way. But, you know, there are multiple contests at the moment. Again, just in that 2PP plus, just looking at the age breakdown as well, it is just still remarkable how amongst 18 to 34s, it's like Labor 58, 37. But if you move into the older cohorts, the coalition is the preferred party, 48, 44. So the, the generational divides have been really significant right through this term of government is really defining... I think a lot of the political battles, and so particularly with that green battle with renters, it's not. I don't think it's drawing votes necessarily to the coalition, but it's definitely taking a bit of bit of the heat away from Labor's primary vote. Hmm. And 
the leader's ratings were relatively stable. The only sort of move bigger than two points was Albanese's neutral rating is down a bit and his negative is up a bit, but his positive is still 37%. What did you make of the leader's ratings? Yeah, it's it's off the highs for um, the Prime Minister, but again, it's almost like we've entered a contest of the PM's making when he stood up the night of the election and said that we were going to honour the Uluru Statement from the Heart and move forward on a voice to Parliament. He created a moment of friction in the term of his government. It's unsurprising that as that noise gets louder, there is there is a little bit of a consequence to that, but still the positives, those rating 7 to 10 out of 10, still at 37%. That's a good position to be in for um, an incumbent. And good news for Anthony Albanese when respondents were asked which of the following describes their view of the 2022 federal election result? Glad that Anthony Albanese and Labor government won versus would have been better if Scott Morrison's Liberal government had been re-elected. What did you yeah. find there? I was actually surprised that um, obviously there's not buyer's remorse. Like one of the interesting things after the change of government in 2013 was people had voted Tony Abbott in and then almost overnight there was a majority of people going, oh, I wish that hadn't happened. Like we asked a similar question back there. It's 57-43. I'm surprised at 43% actually saying it would have been better if Morrison had been re-elected. And then there's some interesting things under the bonnet here, 12% of Labor voters and 26% of Green voters. Contrarily, 23% of coalition voters are glad that there is a Labor government or glad that Anthony Albanese won the last election. So make of that what you will. Sometimes this sort of creates more questions than answers, but I was surprised that that sort of friction at the edges of the the partisan divide. It's interesting. Scott Morrison would have been better if Scott Morrison had been re-elected at 43%. That's exactly the two-party preferred result for the coalition. It almost sort of implies that Scott Morrison, Peter Dutton makes no net difference to the coalition's performance because they're there or thereabouts. And 57% glad that Anthony Albanese won. That would be just about the 51% that are backing Plus Labor. all the undecided. Plus all the undecided. Unlike the other vote, we forced an answer on this. It was a binary, so there wasn't a don't know option in there. So we were sort of playing, you know, think about polling as Play-Doh and sometimes you're using it in different ways to create different figurines. And this was one where we just had a binary. So people were forced to make a call one way or the other. And uh, in some coalition strong demographics like over 55s, Albanese government was ahead 53-47. And in Queensland, where they haven't got many seats and they really need to win some seats, it's 50-50. So maybe there are some potential gains there. Yeah, look, Queensland is the boulevard of broken dreams for Labor really since 2010. If there is any story that says Labor strengthens its majority at the next election, it's Queensland. Um, We do need to make the point also that that's the state where the voice is not playing so well at the moment, it and WA. So we didn't poll on voice this fortnight. We're doing that monthly, although so we'll be back into that in a fortnight's time. 
Now, at Labor Conference, there was a bit of an internal challenge. Uh, the CFMEU were pushing for a super profits tax to spend more on housing and a bit of an external challenge uh, with a rowdy renters' rights rally organised by the Greens outside. What did you find in terms of what people wanted to happen to rents? Yeah, I think we cobbled this together on the run, didn't we, Paul, when you were you were up in Brisbane? Um we gave people four options on the rental rights or the so-called rent freeze. There should be no limit on rent rises. Rent should be able to rise once a year by any amount. Rent should be able to rise once a year by no more than the overall inflation rate and rent should be frozen until economic conditions improve. And I know Labor did a lot of work talking about how economically reckless those sort of more restrictive regulation ideas would be, but they are the ones that play really strongly in the public's eyes, 78% supporting either rents should be able to rise only once a year by no more than overall inflation or rent should be frozen until economic conditions improve, which is almost an open-ended freeze, which is even beyond, I think, where the Greens are at the moment, which is at 34%, so 44 for the um, slightly less restrictive one for landlords. And then you've got only 10% saying there should be no limit on rent rises. And correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but I think the labour policy that they should be able to rise once a year by any amount is only 11%. So look, if the entire political debate was on rental regulation, the Greens are on the right side of that debate against their challenges to make that the broader housing question for people that aren't renting and um, people that are concerned about rising property prices in general. Yeah, and looking at the party breakdown, uh, in terms of the most extreme pro-renter possibility of rent should be frozen, one in three Labor voters back that, Mm. 42% of Greens voters. So obviously more Greens want the more extreme option in favour of renters. But then the next tier down, rent should be able to rise once a year by no more than the overall inflation rate. One in two Labor voters went for that option. And so when you add in those two options together, it's about 83% of Labor voters want one of those two and and 84% of Greens. So the Labor voters seem to be one step less less extreme in the renter's direction, but still one step ahead of where the party is in terms of action on rents. Do you know what else is interesting? If you break this into age... While young people are most likely to support the total freeze until economic conditions improve, if you put those two more restrictive together, it's actually over 55s that are more supportive at 81 to 77. Now, it's both of them are, are overwhelming, but that's um, that wasn't what I was expecting there. Hmm, that's a good point. Perhaps, the bank of mum and dad, uh, I don't know. Perhaps that's the difference between people who are currently renting but expect to be able to buy in the medium term versus people who are renters for life and need a limit on it. But can I, I just say I one know. more thing about this? Because I think what Labor did was quite interesting in terms of the, the rental question. I've got a bit of a pet theory that I haven't totally tested out yet, but I think there is a sense in which the Greens are playing the rental card as if renting is a political identity, whereas mm. I think the risk for the Greens is that most renters actually want to be buyers. So it's not like they're trying to be proud renters. It's just they're caught in this situation. And so measures that actually help more people 
get into the the rental market are probably going to be more compelling than just a strict regulation of rental. But we've got to do a bit more work on that to make a call, but it's little thesis I'm working through my own head at the moment. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think they're trying to awaken this class consciousness and and to make renters think of themselves in that way and for that to be the primary determinant of their vote. But you're right, for people who think that they won't be renting for life, why would they? Why should they? Uh, But, you know, there are an increasing proportion of Zoomers and millennials who do think they'll be renting for life, so it is still fertile ground for them. Yeah, it does remind me of that old take on the um, manifesto, the the working class can kiss my ass, I've got the boss's job at last. Like it, it's just, yeah, they're not going to be locked in forever. If you open the gateways, people are not necessarily going to still identify as renters. So I think there is more complexity to that issue than just simply trying to set up a binary fight between renters and owners. I think there, there are more interesting things going on that if Labor can tap may well obviate what on paper seems to be a slam dunk for the Greens. Now, in order to move from being a renter to owning your own home, uh, Joe Hockey would advise you to get a well-paid job. But of course, you can't get a well-paid job if the robots have stolen it. And so that's the perfect segue to artificial intelligence. Oh, that's Good, Paul. You're good this week. How did people feel about artificial intelligence? Were they fearful? Okay, so let's break this down a bit. So, yeah, so we gave people three options on this. Um, The development of AI has more benefits than risk. The development of AI has an equal amount of benefit and risk. And the development of AI has more risk than benefit. So 10% say happy days, let's just let it rip with more benefits than risk. 54% in the middle um, saying there are equal amounts of benefit and risk and 36 um, saying more risk than benefit. Um, and the catalyst for these questions are, are kind of twofold. One is that there is a review into AI that the government has initiated under um, Industry Minister Ed Husick. But there is also those really interesting battles that are going on in America at the moment around the automation of culture, which we've dived into a little bit more deeply. The one thing I'll say about that risk matrix is, and on all questions of AI, younger people appear more comfortable than older people. So in terms of that, more risk than benefit. If you're over 55, it's 43% are concerned. It's just 28% of younger. But the really, can I go straight to the really interesting one, I think? Not that that isn't interesting. Far away. So so what's going on? Some of you might've seen this just through the fantastic Pickett's (laughs) speeches of the former nanny, Fran Drescher, who is now head of the Actors Guild in, in Hollywood. But at ground zero of Western culture, there's this big strike on with both script writers and actors concerned about work conditions in the streaming world where particularly TV is not commissioned the way it was. But underneath that is this really interesting question about whether there is a guarantee that their work won't be either they won't be either forced to work on AI generated content or their work or, or the work of AI won't be passed off as human work. So we were quite interested in whether people were comfortable about AI generated content. And we asked about visual art, music, novels, film, and news. And it's it's interesting, right? So with visual art generated by AI, 53% say they're comfortable 
36% uncomfortable. Music, again, it's more comfortable than not, 49 to 40. Novels, which I just can't begin, (laughs) which is 45 to 43, saying they're comfortable with AI-generated novels. Um, Similar numbers, it's sort of line ball, 44 to 45 on watching films and TV scripted by AI. Then it's only when you get to news that people discomfort outweigh their comfort, 52 to 37. Um, And again, really big differences in age on all those where younger people are much, much more comfortable. Under 35, 64% are comfortable with AI-generated art, 59% with music, 55% would read novels generated by AI. What are you doing, young people? Do you even read novels? 54% comfortable with TV scripted by AI and 50% happy with um, you becoming a robot, Paul, AI-generated news. Although what they all did agree on at, I very rarely get a number like this, do you think you should have a right to know whether content is generated by AI, which is actually the claim in Hollywood, 90 to 10. Yes, I should have a right to know 90. No, creators should not have to disclose content generated by AI 10. So, you know, we talk about generations having different views of the world, this seems to be one where it is really profound, the difference. And I guess I'll be dead sooner than the younger listeners. So maybe they can replace me with an AI as well. So you have an AI generated pollster at the end of the day. I won't have to worry about it anyway. Just on that previous question, I mean, whether you're comfortable with it, I guess, is a sort of ethical, Mm. moral orientation, but that might be a different question to whether you think it's any good. I would be comfortable reading a novel generated by AI in the same way I would be comfortable reading a novel written by Dan Brown. It doesn't mean I think it's any good. Yeah, we we struggled with how to word it because I think we're just baselining this because the technology is so new. And this is really, it's the generative machine learning that is embedded in chat GTP. And people that have played around that can see the way that it can start looking human-ish. So... We struggled to come up with, so what was the right indicator? And it's at one point it was, I'd like to consume this culture. And another point it was, it would be better or worse. But in the end, the comfort was, I think, actually the threshold question. So it's almost like the door to get through, because if we were all uncomfortable with this technology, I think it's a different discussion than recognising that younger people are okay with it. And so then we've just got to think about what the rules and the guardrails are, which kind of probably brings me to the final question we ask. As you know, it's my hobby horse privacy measures. And we have proposals before the government at the moment. My good friend Ed Santo from the Human Technology Institute wrote a piece in the conversation this week making the point that if we want to regulate AI, the foundations of that is privacy reform. And we haven't had privacy reform in Australia for 40 years. Um really strong support for propositions to strengthen those laws, which, as I say, are before the government at the moment. So strengthening privacy rules for how and when companies can collect, store and use your personal information, um, 77% support. Enforceable rights for people whose data is misused, that's 75% support. Stricter requirements on digital platforms to address disinformation, which is a separate bit of contested legislation at the moment, which 
our friends in the Murdoch press are running a bit of a, a push against at the moment. Um, that's in the 70s as well. Despite the coalition also proposing it when they were in government. Different coloured glasses, my friend. Um, and finally, explicit rules around when companies and government agencies can use facial recognition technology, 71% support. So once you get over that 70% threshold, you say that these are good bets, but the legislation is moving slowly because there's powerful interest both within big tech and big media trying to hold those back. So I don't know if that sort of wraps into some sort of master narrative, but it, it says to me that we can talk about the big future of AI, but until we get the basics right and recognise that what's actually going on is both a technology that's based on the extraction of our personal information and the disruption of our workplaces. Until you get those two bits right, the privacy and the industrial rights, then it is going to be a bit of a free-for-all and we probably, whether we're comfortable or not with the technology being used to automate culture, we're not going to have much control of where it goes next. Bring that back to women's sport. Come on. Well, I, I was going to conclude by thanking everyone who was not in the 37% that said that they were comfortable consuming news generated by AI. <laughs> to thank the 63% for keeping me and Peter in a job. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I think that might be all we have time for for this week. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Cheers, Paul. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and Mel Chun. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.